Good morning, friends. Good to see you this morning. Let's be opening our Bibles to chapter 2 of Ephesians as we continue our overview of this study. <clears throat> I think by now we have determined that January, June the 10th will be the last class, uh, so we'll be completing this on June 10th. So if those of you who are looking for dates, that will be the last class, June 10th. Well, this morning we are going to begin to look at chapter 2, and we're going to just look at the verse, first 10 verses of chapter 2. Now, remember what we discussed. In chapter 1, we saw that Paul began to present God's plan, God's eternal plan in Christ. And as we look at all these verses, and as we consider, especially Ephesians, more than maybe other areas more compactly presented in Ephesians, but true to everything that God does. Everything that God does for us, in us, and through us, everything that God does for us, in us, and through us is as a consequence of our having been in Christ before the foundation of the world. And so what we're seeing in our lives on a daily basis in a time frame is the outworking of God's eternal purpose. What we are doing here is not determining and creating God's purpose, but we are embracing and walking in God's purpose. And so that's what's happening, because often believers believe that we are contributing to and creating and manipulating and moving God in a particular direction and for a particular purpose. That's not what Ephesians says. It says that God is in control. God has a purpose. God has always had a purpose. This is his eternal uh, position, his eternal intention. And that at a particular time, he created all things in order now in a time frame within a, the construct of creation through man specifically, God's purpose would be carried out. And that is this, the uniting of his people in Christ unto himself to be an everlasting community of people who are enjoying and participating and fellowshipping in the most intimate way in the very nature and attributes of God himself. This is God's glory manifested. This is God's joy experienced by us and by him. And so this morning we continue to look at God's process in accomplishing his purpose in Christ. Father, Make it clear to us by your Spirit. Father, cause us to understand by the gift of faith. Father, move this morning and enlarge our understanding. Draw back the curtain of revelation in a greater way. Father, so we can see the magnificence, the enormity the glory of what this salvation, as Hebrews puts it, so great salvation is all about. Father, so that as we understand your word, as you proclaim it to us by your spirit, Father, we will more and more increasingly so see our salvation from your perspective, within the context of your purpose. Father, so that we can be more greatly motivated and empowered to join you and to cooperate with you and to yield to you and walk with you as you are accomplishing your purpose in us, in Christ. So, Father, minister to us this morning by your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you remember in chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, Paul gave us the process of God's plan for the church from God's vantage point. What has God done in Christ for us? So what has he done? He's blessed us. He's called us. He's predestined us. He's redeemed us. Remember that? He's, we've inherited in him. And he sealed us by the Holy Spirit. And all of this was for one purpose. All of this that his glory, the glory of his grace, of his mercy, of his kindness that all of that would be manifested in us as people. You see, the astounding thing is, 
or at least one of the astounding things is that God, that God, that God would choose to take a fallen, rebellious people, because he knew this when he created us, and do such a work of grace in redeeming us, and then continue that huge work of grace in filling us with himself. So that in us, even in these fleshly, fallen, faulty, frail bodies, it's God's glory that is being manifested as he is conforming us to his son. This is past amazing. You know, so often we talk about amazing grace in our salvation. Well, our salvation is the door into the amazing life that God has given us in Christ and him in us. So the whole thing is amazing. So make sure that as we talk about grace, we're not just confining it to being saved, but it is the entire process that God has chosen to go through in order to bring us into himself in such a personal way. Everything about us in Christ, everything about what God has done to achieve this, everything about its process, everything about its goal, everything about its fruition is amazing grace. Amen? Everything is amazing grace. And then last week, and thanks to Jeff Earhart, as I was teaching the other class, he came in here and he shared with you all verses 15 to 23, Paul's prayer, that the church would actually experience the fullness of God's purpose. Verses 1, 3 to 14, here's what God has done. Prayer 15 to 23, Father, make it so in the church. Today, Paul begins to elaborate that heavenly spiritual work, that eternal purpose of God, he begins to now bring it into the construct or the, uh, the, the, the way we live on a daily basis. He brings it, if you would, out of the heavenlies into our daily life so we can see on a practical and daily level what God has done. And so as we look at chapters 2 and 3, we will look at them within the frame or the umbrella, if you would, of verses 3 to 14. So everything you read in chapter 2 and chapter 3, actually from verse 15 of chapter 1 all the way through to the end of chapter 3, and we'll discuss the other chapters later on, we need to see it within the framework of verses 3 to 14. So don't disconnect. 3 to 14 of chapter 1 from everything else because we tend to do that. Oh, I read that, now I'm going to read this. What we see here in these chapters is the outworking in our experience, the outworking in our lives of God's eternal purpose. So Paul is explaining what I've just told you. Let me tell you what it looks like on a daily basis in your life and in my life. So that's where we are in chapter 2. So we're going to talk about God's method of implementing his plan, God's method. Chapter 2 begins this way. God's great plan is to create a community that reflects himself. Chapter 2 is about community. Now, I know that in the United States of America, and I'm glad to live here, okay? I'm not looking to live elsewhere. I haven't moved away, and we're not setting up camp in some other country. And I say that because it might sound like I have a problem here. But there is a problem. Everything God does, he begins with the individual, but the individual is saved and ministered to for one purpose only. For the purpose of creating a community. You see, in the United States, everything is individualism. Individual rights, my own personal opinion. I can do this, you can do that. We all have these. And in our country, the philosophy of this country has created a separation. And so families and clans and community are not priorities in this country as you have them in the East. But God's great purpose is a community. And so everything we see in chapter 2 will be God's work of creating a community called the church. 
it is absolutely antithetical to God's purpose for any of us to consider our salvation apart from the rest of the community of faith. It's not biblical. We are saved individually to be placed into a corporate setting. We are saved to live, not as individuals, but be connected to one another. And why this insistence on community is because God is in himself a community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in order for us to reflect who God is, we must be a community that reflects the community of God. And so everything you see in the Bible, especially accentuated in the New Testament through the teaching of doctrine, emphasizes one another, one another, you all, us, we. These plural words, very seldom the emphasis is on I, me, or a singularity. And when it is, it has a specific purpose, but in, when it comes to living the life of Christ, that I becomes a us immediately. So let's make sure we understand this, that we cannot be fulfilling God's purpose the way he wants it to be filled, and we have an individualistic attitude and me attitude and my attitude. It has to begin to become us. Are you with me on this? Us. Why? Because God in chapter 1 of Genesis didn't say, let me make man according to my image, but let us make man according to our image. Now, I may have to go over a few minutes this morning. Is that acceptable to y'all? Okay, because I can feel I'm slowing down and I want to get going. So as we travel through this particular chapter 2, let's make note of the verb tenses because Paul is going to use two particular verb tenses. He's going to emphasize two things. He's going to emphasize were, our past condition before Christ. He's going to emphasize our past condition before Christ in Adam. And then he's going to say are, our present condition or position in Christ. So you're going to see that were, are, were, are. You were, but now. You're going to see that going back and forth where Paul takes the past and paints the past and he paints it in such a way as to show that the present is great and glorious and to be praised only because of what we understand of the past. So let's look at these verses, verses 1 to 10. God unites his people to himself in Christ let's read the first three verses and you who who's you this is the church but who is you not only you you all but us here so all of us youans you guys you all and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience among whom we, he's now making sure you understand, I'm in this too. Paul's just not saying it's you, it's all of us together. So he's saying we, I'm in it too. This is where I was. And we once lived, you see the past tense. In these three verses you see the past tense, past tense. This is who, who we were in Adam. Among whom we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. Now, just as a sidebar, we should not see any of those activities in our life today, although we still do. Isn't that right? But those activities which were rampant and defined us, because of these fleshly bodies, we've been forgiven. But those activities in us now, in Christ, should be seriously and continually diminishing. Seriously and continually diminishing. So let's look at this, verses 1 to 10. God unites his people to himself in Christ. Now what did I say? What we're dealing with in these verses, chapter 2, all of the chapter is an explanation of what 3 to 14 in chapter 1 talk about. What God has done in those verses, as Paul has 
given us an umbrella description of what God's work is, his eternal plan and the outworking of it. Now we're looking at the particulars of the outwork of that plan. So as you read this, make sure you reference in your mind verses 3 to 14 in chapter 1. <clears throat> God unites his people to himself in Christ, verses 1 to 10. Verse 1, here's who we were. Our condition, verses 1 to 3, our past condition. We were dead men. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Man's problem, you see, is sin. Our problem is never what we do. What we do is the fruit of who we were. And so as we look at our own lives and as we consider the lives of unbelievers, the issue of sin is never to be the problem essentially. It is the fever which the patient has. You know, you go to the doctor and you have a fever and the doctor doesn't say, oh my goodness, you have a fever. What are we going to do? He traces a reason that something of an infection is in your body causing the fever. Yes, the fever is a problem, but it's not the primary problem. What is the primary problem? There's an infection in you causing the fever. So sin isn't our primary problem. It's not the sins. It is the sin itself of being separated from God and rebellious toward God. We were dead in relationship to God. That's the root of the matter. So man's problem is sin, rebellion to, rejection of God's authority and rule. It is the opposite of righteousness, and I have references here that you can be looking to when adam sinned you remember when adam sinned in verses verse 6 of chapter 3 of genesis it said and he ate there's the sin there's the beginning of sin into the world when adam ate we all became sinners in adam reaping the terrible consequences of physical and the spiritual death how many of us have inherited the nature and the propensities and personality traits and so on of our parents anybody here say hey I see your mama in this you're just like your daddy your grandpa used to do the same thing how many of us do that you see what well, Adam is our original parent and when he sinned that nature of sin passed on to everyone born of Adam we were born dead before God as far as our relationship is concerned we were born that way we did not become that way because of what we did because we were born that way therefore we did what we did you see children don't become rebellious by rebelling children are rebellious therefore they what they say no they say I don't want to they do what they do and of course we as adults continue with that Look at some of the adjectives that describe our natural relationship with God. Look at some of the adjectives that describe us before Christ. And as we look at this, we must remember who we were, but also we must remember the lost folks in our lives. We were dead. We were enslaved. These are just some of the adjectives that the Bible uses. We were blind. We were deaf. We were crippled. We were helpless. We were weak. We were ungodly. I didn't even put in there enemies and many more. We can go on and on. The Bible is quite clear. Apart from the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit in birthing us into the kingdom of God, there is no hope in us. We did not become believers because we had faith in Christ. We became believers because God himself in Christ paid the full price and moved upon our stony hearts, Ezekiel 36, and renovated our hearts, which caused us, as we'll see in a moment, to embrace Christ because of his work, his initiating and empowering work in us. We are born again in order to have faith, not we don't have faith to be born again. You're birthed first, and then you begin to live. We don't make a decision for Christ, and then God comes in. It's God's initiating work. Just look at the verbiage in here. Born again is passive. It's something that's done to you. It's not an active, remember the subject and verb, active and passive? Born again is passive. It happens to me. 
Then when that happens, in Ezekiel 36, especially 26 and 27, it's God, 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 God. Then I will cause them to walk and to obey. But we have to receive the Spirit first. You see, no wonder we need to be elected and predestined to be saved. And again, you remember what we said, predestination is not a dirty word. Predestination is God's method of achieving and bringing about his elective purpose. Predestination is the road that God takes to get his purpose to us and to get us all the way through. It's not a dirty word. Dead men's walk, verse 2. We walked in this way in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We didn't know we were walking this way. How many of you, before we were saved, how many of you knew you were walking this way? Did you feel that you were walking according to the prince of the power of the air? Did we think that we were under the influence of a demonic oppression? How many of you felt, I felt fine. What you mean demonic <laughs> nothing wrong you see man doesn't know that he's in this danger this is why the gospel must be clearly and correctly presented so by the Holy Spirit when the gospel is presented the Holy Spirit begins to show man the incredible danger that he's in and then he says oh my god look at me because you can't start saying to people do you feel lost do you feel estranged from God no you goofy, I feel closer to God than you do. I'm spiritual. I pray. I'm in the church. We can't do it like that. Because they don't feel lost until the Holy Spirit begins to make them realize something is utterly wrong inside of me. You see, there's that understanding from Romans 1, 19 and 20. But most men and women get way past that in their feelings, although if they had to sit down, they have to acknowledge there is a God, and we will stand before him. You see, following the course of this world. Look at that. We were doing what? Following the course of this world. How many believers are still actively following the course of this world? I'm watching believers get tattoos. The world is tattooing, so we get tattoos. I'm watching men and women do all kinds of things today. Why? Because the world is doing it. <laughs> Don't you see? I'm watching the culture shape us. Because the world is doing it. It's okay, Peter. Don't be so radical. It's okay. And in every instance, there is a hook from Satan ready to catch you and catch me. It is not okay because the moment we think it's okay, that is one of the, if you would allow me to say it this way, hugest deceptions that there is. It's one of the sharpest hooks that Satan has. It's okay. Don't worry about it. I mean, same-sex marriage, it's okay. You know, it's, it's ungodly, all of it. And same-sex marriage isn't the worst of it. It's all those little things that are seemingly okay that begin to bring in the big problems. The house doesn't fall down because one termite got in there and stuffed himself. It fell down because one termite came in, brought a few friends, they began to multiply, and over a period of time they have a whole flock of these things and they eat your house up. It begins in one little termite at a time. Humanity is not only in the world, they are of the world. They are of the system. Sinful humanity actively embracing friendship with the world system, which is in opposition to God's rule. There's so much to say about this, but I'll pass on. I think you know. I think I know. The moment you and I begin to say it's okay, elders are doing it, it's not whatever, and we begin to do that kind of debate in our hearts, that is not the way God communicates his word to us. Are you with me today on this? 
It is not God's way of communicating. It is Satan's way of debating with us as he did with the woman in Genesis. Isn't it okay? Did God say, it's going to be okay. It's not a big deal. You can do it. You're not going to get in trouble. And boom! Go back and read Genesis 3. And let us be embraced by the subtlety of the enemy. And by our need for the Holy Spirit, as John said, test the spirits to see whether they are of God. The biggest, one of the biggest problems in the church, I'm not going to get finished this today. One of the biggest problems in the church, I know this isn't a preaching time, but I just have to say things. One of the biggest problems in the church today, think about this, the typical church of Jesus Christ isn't making the kind of spiritual impact anymore in the world because we are not sufficiently different from the world system itself. And we're going to be judged for this. Where is the world saying, there's Christ? Where is the world coming under conviction because of us? Where is the power of God moving in this country? Because the church is a life of Christ and the power of Christ upon the earth. Where every place Jesus went, he started a riot. Every place Paul went, he started a riot. Oh, but we, you know, oh, let's, you know, let's, let's. You know, have we read from Luke 12? Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to stomp this thing out. We were also following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You see, humanity's walk, our walk was under the control of and energized by Satan. Any of you think you had free will? Any of you who think you had or have free will, read 2 Timothy 2.26. I won't quote it to you, just read it for yourself. 2 Timothy 2.26, for those who espouse my free will. I don't want my free will. I want God's free will to be operative in me, and I want my will to be enslaved by and overcome by and led by God's will. Are you with me? If I have my will, I'm going down like a lead brick. Like a lead brick. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. It is the work of His will in me, overcoming, freeing my will, so I, my will, can be cooperative with his will so that my will and God's will are becoming one will sons of disobedience humanity is following the dictates of its spiritual father listen to this as Jesus in chapter 8 is talking to the Pharisees and this is relates to us because we are all in the same bucket originally in Adam you are of your father the devil and your will before Satan, I'm sorry, uh, Christ, your will is to do your father's desires. I don't see anything in there that says your will was to choose me, therefore I came a-running. Jesus had to come in, break the door down, smash it in, take the hard rock of our heart, crush it by the grace of his goodness so that our will could be released to say yes to Jesus willingly and joyfully cooperating with God's will. How do you think you got saved? And how are we maintained? And how are we going to grow except that way? Dead men's nature, behavior, among whom you once lived in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest. You see, we were born into this. We were born into this. And as a result, he says, children of wrath, as a result, we were born under the sentence of the wrath of God. I've listed, do you have it in your notes, some of the references for the wrath of God in the New Testament. We should not be afraid of this issue of the wrath of God. It is the way God terrorizes us out of our old humanity into his. 
terrorizing us by the fact that we are facing the judgment of the wrath of God so that we can begin to say, oh, God, save me from that. I don't want to go to hell. I want to be saved. It is a beginning turning of a heart that is against God, showing them that loss of relationship requires damnation. And he turns us. That is good news. I don't want to hear that I'm sick. But if I'm sick, I've got to hear the news that I'm sick so that I will submit to and walk with the prescriptions of the doctor. Quite frankly, today, I don't think we have enough teaching and preaching in this area. You say, oh, that, that hellfire, you're trying to frighten people into heaven. No, God is frightening us to wake us up to the condition that we're in so that we will call upon his name. I've shared with a lot of folks in my day, and you share this, that, and the other, but once you touch the issue of eternal wrath and hell, everything in the conversation changes. We have to do it properly. We have to do it sincerely. We have to do it in a nice way, so smile a lot. We're not doing it in a condemning way. We're not doing it in a, in a dictatorial way. We're not, you know, we, we're sharing. This is what's going on. So let's summarize some of man's dilemma. Man inherited Adam's sin nature. Man is enslaved to sin. Man has forfeited his fellowship, friendship with God. Man has become God's enemy, has incurred God's hatred, is un- Yes, incurred God hate. You know, there is a thing that God hates sin but loves the sinner. Where do you see that? Where is that in the Bible? Just look at Psalm 5, 5 and 6, and you tell me whom God hates. God's anger and antagonism is upon the person who sins. He doesn't make a separation there. Why? Because we are by nature sin. So God hates the sin but loves the sinner. I don't don't see that. He loves us, his children, and he loves us into heaven. I'm going to probably get some calls this week, and I hope I do. Mankind is under the curse of God's judgment. We were born under a curse. Man is subject to the wrath of God. Man is helpless and hopeless to save himself. It's not a pretty picture. Verses 10 to 4 to 10. Let's get out of that. Why did I emphasize this? I'm emphasizing it because Paul is emphasizing it. When you look at the greatest presentation of justification saved by grace, the power of the gospel, which is Romans, Paul takes from chapter 1, 18, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20, and condemns and pulverizes and beats down and completely devastates man in his sin. Then he brings forth the news of the gospel of salvation. You read Romans, and by the time you get to Romans chapter 3, 20, it's like, whew, whew, man, oh. It's devastating because this man knew that the Holy Spirit uses this to convince us of the utter depravity and lostness and hopelessness of our estate in Adam. Why? So that we will gladly receive Christ and rejoice in the great salvation because the greater the damnation, the greater the salvation. May I repeat that for you? I didn't hear anything. The greater the damnation, the greater the salvation. That's right. I've been saved from the worst. Therefore, I rejoice of what God has done in me. He who has been given much, what? Loves much. He who understands he's been given, forgiven just a little bit, loves a little bit. Verses 4 to 10, the greatest salvation from the greatest danger. You see, like a wise master builder, Paul calls himself that in 1 Corinthians 3.10, 
Paul has carefully and accurately laid the foundation, doctrine of foundation, for the need of and the glory of God's grace in our salvation. You see, if we don't see those verses clearly, our need is diminished in our mind and the reception of grace is not as great and awesome as it should be because we're not seeing the clarity of our previous condition in Adam. And because of that, we are not willing to go through the sufferings and the deprivations and the difficulties and the struggles against sin and Satan and in this world because we haven't seen how absolutely damned we were for all eternity and how absolutely incredible God's grace is to save us. All of that disaster, look at the first two words of chapter 2, verse 4. But God, there it is, but God. You see, in saying but God, the simple phrase gathers up and reverses everything of verses 1 to 3. You look at 1 to 3 and shudder and sweat and ponder and remember then look at verse 4 but God and rejoice and wonder why and be amazed by that God has collected everything that could have been said about our condition and has brought it into Christ and reverse the whole thing is that grace or not is that something about which we should shout and holler and get excited? Yes! Therefore, on a Sunday morning when we're rejoicing in that sanctuary, we should be going nuts over this. You say, well, Peter gets excited. I don't get excited about anything like I get excited about this relationship with God. Nothing in my life is more important than this because this now is my life like it is yours. It should blow us up. We should be a people of incalculable joy and celebration. Read some of the Old Testament celebrations and these people weren't just sitting around reading a hymn or two and saying amen and God bless us and hallelujah to, you know, they were going crazy. This was a celebration. Let me tell you, this company of people celebrated when they did it the right way. You see, before giving us the what, though, God, he gives us the why. Here's Paul. Why? Paul, Paul's about to say what. The what is this. But God, and then when you move down to verse 5, made us alive. That's how the sentence goes. But God, look at verse 5, made us alive. That's what Paul is going. But he said, but God. And before James, he can say he made us alive. i got to tell you something. i just got to tell you something about God. I'm going to tell you he made us alive, but before I tell you he made us alive, I have to tell you why. See, Paul is not satisfied in just telling us what God has done. He's telling us who God is who has done this and why. But God, what? what? Wait, stop a second. But God, wait, wait, wait. Before I go on, but God, what, what, what? Because of his, read it, great mercy. Because of his, what? Great mercy. Did I say it right? Because of his rich mercy, because of his great love with which he has loved us, what did he do? Say it again. Even what? Even when what? We were dead. He goes back to chapter, verse 1, dead in trespasses. Even when we were dead in, dead what, 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 what? He did what? Say it again, Nettie. He made us alive. How? Where? Who? In Christ you see I can't go on he says and tell you what he's done until I got to tell you something about this God of ours. but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us why is that so great it's great because of verses 1 to 3 if you don't see and understand and haven't grappled with and haven't remembered and pondered verses 1 to 3, verse 4 isn't that meaningful to you. Verse 4 is only meaningful to us because of verses 1 to 3. Are you seeing this? 
This is how we read this. Verse 4 is great because of verses 1 to 3. And the more I realized this damnation in my condition and my, what was going to happen to me and how it, you know, all of the hideous, horrible things that were going to happen to me, that God rescued me. Oh, how great is his mercy because of his love. So when I am tempted to sin in this world as a believer, I look back and say, Satan, you are not going to make me go back and live the way I used to. Why? Because I'm afraid of God? No, but because of God's great mercy of rescuing me from that mess, I will not go back into it. Come on, we had to fight. We had to fight. So I'm getting too loud. Turn this contraption down. What has he done? Look at verse 5. Three things he's done. He's made us alive in Christ. He reversed verse he reversed verse 1. He raised us up in Christ. We were going down. He brought us up in Christ. He sealed us with Christ. We were sealed in the Adam, and now we're sealed in the Christ by the Holy Spirit. You see what he's done? He's reversed verses 1 to 3. Verse 7. Why? Why has he done this? Paul gives us the reason two or three different ways in this particular letter we'll see another way in chapter 3 verse 10 but let's look at why has he done this look at verse 7 and gobble it up in trying to figure out and understand why have I been saved why why well look at verse 7 Paul says why that in that so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward in kindness toward in kindness toward us where where in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show what immeasurable what does immeasurable mean can't be measured the immeasurable what riches of his what grace what grace in kindness, but God mercy. Remember, in kindness, mercy. You see it? Toward whom? Us. Who were the us, Billy? We were the us in verses 1 to 3. Isn't that right? Toward us. Where? In Christ. Do you see anything in there that we deserve this or we did something to earn it or we made a decision first and God came running? Do you see anything like that in there? I need to move along. Everything God does is to glorify and magnify his name. Verse 8 to 10, unpack how God has achieved this. How has God done it? How has God done such a marvelous work of grace in my life and in your life? Creating not me as an individual believer, but creating me as an individual believer and putting me into you and you into me so all of us are a community together in Christ as God is in himself a community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For by grace, he's done this by and for grace. For by grace you have been saved. Now, there's the statement. God unilaterally, completely by himself, without any outside help, saved us. He saved us. You see, Jesus' death on the cross does not make salvation available. Now, you've got to write that down. There's certain things you've just got to write down because it's going to be on a final exam. When I was an English teacher, I said, wait a minute, girls. It was an all-girls high school. I said, this is going to be on the final exam. All of a sudden, the pens came out and the writing started. This is going to be on the final exam. Jesus did not die to make salvation available. He did not die to make our salvation available. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, what kind of a heresy is this? Jesus died to save. Jesus' death actually saves the lost who are his people. It doesn't make it available. It makes it actual. God never says, I have a plan, and I'm going to put it out there, 
and I'm hoping somebody hooks onto this plan and walks with it because I'm going to be real disappointed if only two or three people come into the kingdom because they sought me. God saves through the death of Christ and the resurrection, and then he begins to apply that salvation by going through the world through his Holy Spirit, hunting down the family. He does not make it available. He makes it actual. How many of you are glad? Listen, if he made it available, you know what? Brenda, you would never be here today, girl, because you could not have given a hell of an attitude about God. I would not be here if this were available to me. I'm here, Donnie, because God saved me. Not available, but actual. Are you with me today? I'm hoping some people's theology is crumbling and God's theology is coming forth. I hope our conceptions are crumbling and God's biblical presentation is growing among us so we can see this is a great salvation. No wonder Paul says, but God being rich in mercy. No wonder he said, the surpassing greatness of his kindness toward us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved. When? When? At the cross. You see, we had nothing to do with being saved. We had nothing to do with the purchase of our salvation. Our salvation was accomplished before we were born. Remember that? How many of you were here then? Before we were born, it was accomplished. In fact, it was accomplished in the mind and heart of God before even the creation, and it was put into effect at the cross of Christ. <clears throat> it's not of us. Look at verse 8. And this, what? This salvation is not of your own doing, this grace. It's a gift of God as a result of works. Not as a result, sorry, of works. So you see, we're not saved by faith. Don't say that. We're not saved by faith. <clears throat> oh my goodness, he's undoing everything this morning. I'm not saved by faith, I'm saved by grace. Faith is not the way I get saved. Faith is God's work in me, moving me as his gift to me to receive that which God has accomplished in Christ. Faith is not my work to get saved. It is God's moving in my heart with the gift of faith, giving me the understanding of what has been said, giving me the desire to receive what has been said giving me the ability to receive what has been said and done in the gospel and giving me the ability to walk with him in the gospel. Faith is God's work. It is his gift to me so I can receive. I'm saved by the death of Christ, which is grace. I know our terminology, we but we have to be careful. Brother, you're saved by faith. No, that's not true. Faith doesn't save anybody. Christ saves. Can we get the subject back on the subject? Who saves? Christ saves. How do we receive it? By faith. Is this helpful to you? Christ saves. I know we forget sometimes we get our terminology, but, but we must be clear on this. You see, Bob, Christ saved you, not faith. There's too much teaching out there about faith. It, it wants to elevate faith above Christ. Faith is not a, some money we give God and back and forth. It's not a work of ours. It's the work of God in me. Bringing about the consummation of his will. You see, faith is the first fruit of the gospel and the most pervasive and continuing fruit of the gospel. Remember Hebrews 11.6. You can read that on your own. That's just a free gift. <clears throat> so what does it say? Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, the word this is neuter. It refers to the word faith and also gathers up the rest. And this, what? Faith. It is a gift of God. Why? Because if we don't know that, I'm going to tell you how great I am when I received Christ and I decided to 
receive. I decided to receive Christ. I found Jesus. I found Jesus. I know. Jesus found me. Jesus overcame me by his spirit. And I surrendered and received the work that he was doing in my heart. I didn't have faith to get Holy Spirit into my heart, but because the Holy Spirit was already messing with my heart, he gave me the ability to say, let's do this. Amen? We're saved by faith? No, we're saved by grace, the death of Christ, the resurrection, the ascension, the glorification, the exaltation of our Lord who sends the Holy Spirit, who applies the great work of our salvation in Christ. So you're not saved by faith. You're saved by Christ himself. And grace is God's activity of giving it to us, free of our ability to merit or earn it through his gift of faith. Why does God deny us a part in accomplishment? So none of us can boast. And Paul gives a practical proof of the outworking of our salvation. He says, we are created, created under good works. You see, we are talking about works of salvation, not works for salvation. Please make sure you get your prepositions in mind. Remember your English teacher who used to teach you about prepositions and prepositional phrases. These little words mean something. We are not saved, um, salvation, what, what was I saying? These are not works, what? For salvation, they are works of. They are not works that can maintain our salvation and can even improve our salvation because our salvation cannot be improved on because the death of Jesus was complete and full and perfect. Our salvation cannot be maintained by anything that I do because it becomes my work. It is done by God who energizes me and you to be cooperating by faith with his work. So he is maintaining it and I am walking with him in that maintenance. So I am being kept saved by his active work of faith in me which saved me and which keeps me saved all the way to the end. This is God. No wonder the Bible says amazing grace. Amazing grace. Nobody would have come up with a theology like this. There ain't a religion in the world that comes up even near this theology. And so either the people who came up with this theology were totally nuts or they got it from outside. They got it from outside. Where'd they get it? Heaven. There's a heavenly theology. So now that we've seen the radical and amazing work of God in saving us from the wrath to come, not only forgiving us but giving us a place with God in Christ, it is difficult, is it difficult for anybody to overcome, be overcome with gratitude, to praise and desire to walk with him in obedience? What an amazing God we have. Amen. See you next week.